Well, we're in 2 Samuel chapter 11 today. Last Sunday, we came to the high water mark in the life of David in 2 Samuel. Not just the high water mark for him personally, but also the high water mark for the nation under his leadership. It's very important that we know that and have that firmly in mind before going any further in our study of 2 Samuel. Because from 2 Samuel 11 on, things are very different. In our country, there was a time, a season, an atmosphere, a reality that was before September 11, 2001. You see in the media, even today, use of the phrases pre-9-11 or post-9-11. That was a pre-9-11 world or we're living in a post-9-11 world. Well, 2 Samuel 11 is the 9-11 of David's life. And what's worse, he's not the victim, but he is the direct cause of it all. So before we enter into that chaos and near collapse, let's take one more look around at the scenery that we've come to enjoy in the story of David, that is, in these pre-9-11 days. We were introduced to the shepherd boy in 1 Samuel 16, a man after God's own heart, a man of God's own choosing. It was right there in that house when he was anointed that God's spirit entered in, and God was with him from that day forward. As a young lad, he was the only one to stand up to that Philistine, blasphemer, giant, Goliath. David was the sole Israelite to defend God's honor that day and to testify both to the Philistines and to the Israelites that God saves not by sword or by might, for the battle is the Lord's. God's hand was upon him and and gave him success wherever he went, even when it didn't look like success. Like when he was on the run from the, the king at that time, Saul, and hiding in caves, God protected him. God provided for him. God, again, was with him. Though God had promised the kingdom of Israel to David, God did not give it immediately to him. And yet David, did, he did not take it when others said he should. He refused to take Saul's life when twice he had it right there within reach. He could have easily killed the king and paved the way for his path to the throne, but he, he didn't. He waited, he trusted God. And when Saul finally did die and his son Jonathan with him on the battlefield at the end of 1 Samuel We turn the page to 2 Samuel, and when David hears of it, he mourns. He he writes a, a funeral dirge for the death of his enemy, Saul. Just the kind of guy he is. Soon after this, David became king of Judah. Not over all Israel at first, but just Judah. And again, he didn't take the opportunity to 
receive the kingdom or apprehend the kingdom by force or by deception or by cunning? No, in fact, when his commander Joab killed people who were against David's throne, David mourned. David was furious at Joab. And it isn't long before eventually the tribes all recognize David as their king. That's 2 Samuel 5. David becomes a healing balm and a uniting factor for God's people. He restores God's worship in 2 Samuel 6 as the Ark of the Covenant is brought into the new headquarters for rule and righteousness and worship in Jerusalem. And David led the way as he danced before the Ark with all his might. Recall, if you've been with us in our study of 2 Samuel, that in chapter 7, God enlarged the promises to his king. God enlarged them to a global extent and to an eternal extent. And recall David's great humble praise at the end of that chapter in response to God's promises. Recall the rich the telling story of David with Mephibosheth that we saw last week in 2 Samuel 9. Far from being the kind of king where the offspring of any would-be rival to the throne is killed, David goes looking for opportunity to show kindness to any son or grandson of Saul, and he shows it to this crippled Mephibosheth. Recall David's battlefield successes that we've seen in the last couple of weeks. In chapter 8 and chapter 10, these geopolitical threats to God's promises and to Israel's ongoing existence. God was with David and gave him success wherever he went. And David was not a tyrant king in the process. He was not one to merely advance his territory through bloodshed. We saw that so clearly last week in 2 Samuel 10 when, when David extends covenant loyalty to an Ammonite king, though the king rejected it to his peril. We have in chapter 8 verse 15 a good summary of all this. Here's the high watermark of David's reign. So David reigned over all Israel and he administered justice and equity to all his people. He's a good king, and it's good to be under this king. As it goes with the king, so it goes with the nation. That's the principle of the Old Testament. And the promises of old, and now some new, have landed on him and are running through him now and forever. Far from being just a protagonist, sorry, Protagonist? What's, what's the good guy in the story? Protagonist, yeah. Far from being a protagonist in some ancient Near East religious stories, David is God's man, the God of the universe, the God of creation. These are God's stories. These, this, is, this is God's plan. The kingdom is being administered through his man, David, in the years of waiting Millennia almost of waiting are about done or so it would seem. There's only one dwindling army left to finish off and then it's done. Finally, that promise given to Joshua to have rest on every side, peace in the land. It's a 
about there. And that's where chapter 10 brought us to last week. But that was all pre-9-11. Now let's read 9-11. We'll start in chapter 11 with just the first five verses. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived And she sent and told David, I am pregnant. We'll stop there. It doesn't look like 9-11 yet. In fact, it looks as common as anything we read in the papers today. A politician got a gal pregnant. Yawn. But we'll see. That's where it starts, and it leads and spirals out of control from there. We'll take this chapter in four sections. What we've read so far covers the first two sections, and then we'll read on in the chapter as we get to those third and fourth sections in just a bit. The first section we could call a a mundane setting. It's a mundane setting at first. Battles in those days apparently tended to be fought in between seasons of harvest and planting. So in the spring of the year, it says... Israel got back to its war with the Ammonites. That was talked about in chapter 10. The Ammonites, you might recall, though David extended covenant loyalty to that king, he formed a five-nation coalition against Israel. And at the end of the story of chapter 10, all the enemies are either obliterated or subjugated, or in the case of the Ammonites, they fled. And now chapter 11 is talking about finishing the job, and it finishes in rather quick and tidy fashion in verse 1. David sent Joab, his commander, and his servants with him in all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. Now back in chapter 10, there's mention of David sending the troops or sending Joab, and yet there are also other times in chapter 10 where David is the one going. He's leading the way. He's leading the charge. It isn't too often in the book of 2 Samuel that David stays home. These were days when the kings were warrior kings. And David was the best warrior king of all the warrior kings. It may not have been wrong in every case for a king to stay and to send an army rather than to go and to lead it himself. But it it wasn't the norm, know that. And with the way it's described here in chapter 11, it's clear that there's something wrong about David staying behind as the army went out. Notice verse 1, when the kings go out to battle, you skip a little bit further down to the end of it, and 
David remained at Jerusalem. It's a contrast. And what was he doing in Jerusalem? Well, here's a snapshot. Verse 2 at the beginning. It's late one afternoon. David arose from his couch or bed. It could be either one. And he was walking on the roof of his house. It's a mundane setting. The army is at war, yes, but it's having its way once again with another challenger. And the king is simply taking an afternoon nap. The nap draws to an end. He decides to get up. He goes for a stroll. Is he bored? Is he being lazy? Well, maybe that's inferring too much. But isn't the picture at least one of comfort and ease? You see, this is not an indifferent description of the situation. The writer means to communicate to us that David was not where he should have been, even if at other times it was okay for him to stay behind. David here was not doing what he should have been doing. The army is ravaging and besieging, and the king is loafing and roaming. Right? Kings go out to battle. David remained in Jerusalem. There's a neglect of duty. And this neglect of duty gave him time. And what did he do with his time? What what do you do with your time when you've got time to do whatever? Now we know with the case of David here, we know where it's going. We know the story. We've heard it in Sunday school. Many of us have. We've read enough of it this morning to know where this is going. And so we know that this so-called mundane setting is, is really a prelude to temptation. It all looks so harmless. It's a boring day in a good way. Times are good. Things are peaceful. You can imagine David thinking to himself when he decided to stay home, It's God who gave me all this stuff. It's God who's given us this ease, this comfort, and this palatial place to live. I've put in my time. I've killed my tens of thousands, ten thousands. I've done my fair share. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. It's a perfect storm John Owen said that sin is never less quiet than when it seems to be most quiet. And its waters are for the most part deep when they are still. Owen said, so ought our striving against sin to be vigorous, even when there is least suspicion. Neglect of duty. Absence of responsibility, absence of time for David is a perfect storm. What are some of your perfect storms in life thus far? When are you most tempted? Now, some of us are so busy that we we should actually try to imitate David every now and then and take a nap in the afternoon and get up and go for a little walk. But some of us think we're busy, and yet we still have plenty enough time to dabble with our temptations and our sins. 
one of the ways that we fight against sin and temptation is to stay busy with what God has for us. To stay busy. A wise pastor once told me, I don't have time to Google things that I shouldn't. Do you? Ladies, when is it that you're most tempted to envy someone or think about yourself too much or promote yourself? Is it when you are filled up in joy but in full capacity with God's high calling of motherhood on a daily basis? Or is it when you go for a little walk through social media, see what others are doing, look down from your rooftop? Some of us are all too comfy with circumstances that we know from experience to be trouble for us. We we must be careful of little things. Mundane settings sometimes can be perfect storms and preludes to severe and trying temptation. Genesis 4, there God told Cain, sin is crouching at the door. It desires to overtake you, but you should overtake it. If not, a mundane situation becomes a perfect storm, and a perfect storm becomes a disaster. So the second part of this chapter is a sordid encounter. A sordid encounter. Let's read it again, but this time let's notice a few things. Let me point these out for you to notice as I read. Notice the speed of the storytelling here. Notice the absence of emotion in what we read. Notice how minimal the dialogue is. And notice the progression of verbs. He saw, he inquired, he sent, he took, he lay, she conceived. Verses 2 through 5. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. She'd been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived. And she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. Feel the speed of all that? It happens so fast. Sin is powerful that way. A look turns into a gaze. A gaze turns into an inquiry, all innocent enough thus far. An inquiry turns in to an invitation, one she could not refuse. A meeting turns into adultery. Adultery turns into pregnancy. It doesn't always go that way, but any sin can be like that. It spirals, it grows. There's a power to sin in general that is breathtaking when we see it in action. 
we're going to see throughout this chapter that what we have here in this chapter is, in effect, an anatomy of sin, an expose of what sin is and how it works. I'll keep coming back to that throughout. But here, we're already seeing at the beginning the, the power of temptation and sin. There's a gravity to it, a vortex to it. Sin is powerful. Not that that should cause any of us to make excuses for our sin or think that we are victims of our sin. We're not. In fact, did you notice that the guilt is placed squarely on David already in just the way the story is told? We need to take a couple minutes on this because it's very important and yet it's often misunderstood in the story of David and Bathsheba. In 1951, there was a Hollywood movie called David and Bathsheba, and Bathsheba was portrayed as a seductive temptress. She's more the Proverbs 6 woman who's ready to eat a man for lunch than just a woman who's bathing. But that's not what we have here in 2 Samuel 11. Yes, yes, she's bathing, and yes, David can see that, and she's very beautiful, we're told, but that's all it says. Well, well, that's not all it says. Verse 4 says more. That seemingly odd parenthetical comment there. Now, she'd been purifying herself from her uncleanness. This helps us think through the situation. This means that she was there for a ceremonial washing. The Old Covenant, the Mosaic Law, required women after, women after their menstruation to, to clean ritually or ceremonially, not just for hygiene. This was one of those strange-to-us sort of ways in which God back then was showing his people their need for holiness and showing it through uh, a ritual, an outward illustration Ceremonial washings were not the equivalent of you having a hot bath. And Bathsheba here was not skinny dipping in her hot tub. The word naked is not in this passage. We shouldn't assume that. We probably assume that because of our hyper-sexualized culture. It just says she was there washing. And she was washing because of her menstruation, and this was a ceremonial washing. It was likely a bowl, not a bath. And there's no blame put on her here for what she was doing. The blame is clearly laid upon the king who sent and inquired. In fact, whoever told David who she was didn't make it easy on David to take it to the next step. Is not this Bathsheba? The daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? She has a name. She has a dad. She has a husband. These should have been verbal cues for David to stop right there. She's not an object. She's not a conquest. She's not a fling. She's someone's wife. And not just someone's wife. She's the wife of Uriah the Hittite. David knew who that was. 2 Samuel 23 records David's mighty men. There's a group called the 30. There are actually 37 of them, but they had the nickname, the 30. The 30 top elite soldiers. Uriah 
the Hittite is the last one listed. David knew who this was. And yet it's no deterrent to David's lusts. Verse 4, David sent messengers and he took her. He took her. Does that ring a bell if you've been with us in our study of First and Second Samuel? Remember that in First Samuel 8, when the people demanded to have a king like all the nations around them, Samuel warned them, the kind of king you're talking about is one who takes and takes and takes. He'll take your sons and make them work, or he'll put them in his army. He will take your daughters for himself. Up to this point, David had been quite unlike the kings of the nations around them. He had been one who gives and gives and gives, like the chapter before. Chapter 9 actually shows us so well with Mephibosheth. But now David is acting just like one of those kings. He took her. Was it rape? We're not told. Some have argued so. Some have said, how could she have refused the advances of the king? Perhaps, but again, we're not told that. Other people, on the other hand, have wrongly made her out to be equally complicit with David. Perhaps even flattered that the king would pursue her. But we're not told that either. There are many questions that we might have for this passage that the writer is content to not answer for us. What is undeniable is David's guilt. He's the man, and he's the king, and he's the one acting, seeing, inquiring, sending for, taking, and laying, and when it's all done, sending her back to her home. The only proactive thing that Bathsheba does In fact, the only words that she has in the whole story are in verse 5 when she sends word to the king, I am pregnant. It's two words in Hebrew. I'm pregnant. And here we have further insight into what that seemingly odd parenthetical comment is all about in verse 4. She'd been purifying herself from her uncleanness. This means that Bathsheba was not pregnant prior to being with David. Therefore, the child was not Uriah's. There was no doubt who it was. She knows it. David now knows it. Uriah will eventually know it. Won't he? Thirdly, there's a desperate cover-up. Verses 6 to 25 launch us into several layers to David's cover-up. The first couple fail, and then as David's desperation escalates, so does the wickedness of the cover-up, and so does the involvement of others. The first attempt at a cover-up is relatively harmless. It's still sin, but it's harmless compared to the others that follow. Look at verses 6 through 8. So David sent word to Joab, his commander, send me Uriah the Hittite, And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. And David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. 
He sent for. You might have noticed already that the verbs send or sent are used throughout this chapter extensively in a strange way. The repetition is there to place emphasis on authority. It's usually David who is doing the sending. He sent the troops into battle. He sent for Bathsheba. And now in verse 6, he's sending word to Joab about him sending Uriah to David. And he's sending for Uriah, not for these cheesy updates in verse 7. How you doing? How are the people doing? How's the war going? It's not genuine concern that causes David to ask these questions. He's, he's showing to us, the reader, to himself, if he's aware of it, the two-facedness of what he's doing, the hypocrisy of it. David is asking these questions and getting to one thing for one purpose, cover up. He wants Uriah to go home and wash his feet. <laughs> Old Testament scholars say that wash your feet is a euphemism for sex. I'm not sure why or how. Perhaps among farmers or something, they'd say something like, uh, you're going to clip your toenails tonight, honey? I don't know. But that's what David is suggesting to him, and Uriah knows it. That's what he shows us later on as he responds to David. The cover-up plan is obvious enough to us, the reader, even if it's not to Uriah. He'll come home. He'll enjoy his wife. He'll enjoy the marital bed. He'll assume, and everyone but David and and Bathsheba will know that the son is Uriah's and not David's. But of course the plan fought, fails. Verse 9. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and, and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house. David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. He couldn't lie with his wife, not because he didn't want to, the Ark of the Covenant being with them suggests that this was a holy war. And it was common to require the soldiers ritual purity, which in part meant abstaining from sex, even sex from your wife. You see a hint of that in 1 Samuel 21.5 if you want to hunt that down. That's probably what Uriah is alluding to in verse 11. But notice also the irony with the way Uriah sees himself in solidarity with his fellow soldiers. Even while he's home in Jerusalem, he's with the soldiers as much as he can be. If they're not in beds, I'm not in the bed. If they're not washing feet, I'm not washing feet tonight. What's ironic about that is that David, the king, the commander-in-chief, and the mightiest warrior of them all, He's been doing the exact opposite while all Israel is at war. 
They're entrenched against the Ammonites, but David is in the comfy palace, lazing about on the royal couch, strolling about the roof in the afternoon, inquiring about pretty, a pretty girl, and then sleeping with her. Uriah's steadfast nobility and honor is in stark contrast to the king's honor. And all this from a Hittite. Did you notice that? A Hittite, a Gentile convert. Then we read of another attempt at cover-up. David doubles down on his first plan. Verse 12, David said to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie in his couch with the servants of the Lord, but he did not go down to his house. Notice there's like a parallel. Uriah says, shall I eat, drink, lie with my wife? No. And then David eats, drinks, gets him drunk. He's going to lie down with his wife? No with other soldiers on the couch. Drunk Uriah is more noble than sober David. But David can't get him to do what the king wants him to do. The king can say, come. The king can say, stay. The king can say, drink up. But he can't get him to go to his wife's bed. You notice... Earlier in the story, David was so much in control. He was sending the army and sending messengers and sending for the woman and and taking her for himself. But as the story moves on, David can't seem to control anything. Control is an illusion. Sin lies to us. Sin lies to us that we can... Keep our sin on a leash. Bring it out when we want. Play with it a little. Put it back in its hidden spot. Conveniently later for no one to see. Sin lies to us that we can test drive it without having to make any payments on it. Without having to own it. But guess what? Sin owns us. Sin often drives us far from freeing us, like the world around us says, or like we sometimes tell ourselves, sin enslaves us. People today talk much of sexual freedom. Does David look free right here? No, sir. You know where there's real sexual freedom? In the old marital bed, the old familiar, familiar marital bed, there is great freedom, as God's plan has always been. David thought he was safely in the driver's seat when he was looking at and inquiring and calling for and lying with and sending home, and, and yet he can't control everything. In fact, he looks controlled by the circumstances. Cover-up number three, a stupid one. 
In verse 14 and following, David is growing in his desperation. He's tried twice to get Uriah to sleep with his wife. And now there's this. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. I said David's plan was a stupid one. We know that because Joab didn't follow it to a T. It would have been too obvious, too public, and involved too many people for for Joab to say to the front line, everyone take a step forward except Uriah. And then I'm going to say to you guys, I've got a magic word, retreat. But he won't know, and he'll stay, and he'll die. Joab may not have known what David did that fateful night. He may not have known why Uriah needed to be rubbed out, as the mafia says. But he knew he needed to be rubbed out. And he knew how that game works. You want as, many, as few people as possible in on it or suspicious of it. And so Joab put Uriah with others against the most valiant Ammonite soldiers And they all fell together. No one stepped back. Not only is one of the elite 30 rubbed out to cover the king's sin, but many, look at verse 17, many servants of David who knew that day they served the king as they did. One of the key sins in this chapter is the abuse of power, the taking, the sending, the sending for, the manipulating. Absolute power corrupts absolutely, Lord Acton said. But you don't need absolute power to be corrupted by it some. Thank God for whatever accountability you have in your life. Having studied this chapter this week, I'm so thankful for a plurality of pastors at this church. I'm so thankful that I can't write checks from this church's bank account or decide budget line items alone or, or decide even what I'm going to do next sometimes apart from others. Praise God for accountability. Praise God we don't have the kind of power that David apparently had this day on 9-11. From verses 18 to 24, we have a rather odd account about messages. Joab sending message to David, telling the messenger what to say. Then the messenger coming to David with his report. And neither of them is precisely what happened. And none of it is exactly what David had told Joab to do. So we'll just skip it. We'll skip verses 18 and 24. You can read it on your own, and what you can learn is this. They're all protecting their butts. They're all changing the plan slightly or changing the record a little bit. And the whole thing 
is convoluted. And yet the only thing that matters, the Hittite is dead. David hears that all his men, or at least many of his servants, had died that day. And also Uriah the Hittite. The hoped-for outcome had been accomplished. And, and how will the king respond to this? Verse 25. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. All this stuff happens, Joab. You know, I mean, it's just, it's so random out there. Who's to predict who dies one day and who lives the next? It's just a crapshoot. That's, that's how war goes, Joab. Don't, don't think this was evil. Is literally what, J, what David said. Don't think this was evil. Don't let this matter be evil in your eyes. David said... To the messenger, encourage him. John Calvin, talking about this passage, said, Having done all that David did, he simply wiped his mouth. Sin spirals, doesn't it? Sin snowballs. It started with a glance, then a gaze, then an inquiry, then ascending for, a meeting with, laying with conceiving abuse of power lying manipulating many lives dead and Uriah in the midst of it all to cover up the king's sin it snowballs sin dehumanizes doesn't it it dehumanizes the sinner and those he or she sins against Bathsheba slept with and sent home. The next time she's referred to, she's referred to as the woman. It's almost like the narrator speaking like David would, the woman. Then we have a simple conclusion. Fourthly, there's a simple conclusion to wrap all this up. The simple conclusion that we see in the last couple verses here, it's not David's plan A. Plan A was to have a one-night stand that no one would know about. It's not David's plan B, that Uriah would come home and sleep with his wife. And though the baby would be David's, Uriah wouldn't know it and no one would. It would be a secret that Bathsheba and David would take to their grave. Plan B didn't work. And so David turned to plan C, Uriah dead. You could say Joab turned into plan D, the messenger reported plan E, whatever. But from there, with Uriah dead, there's an obvious and simple conclusion in verse 26 and 27. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. Stop there and look at the rest in just a minute. But, but notice here that David, David didn't mourn. He mourned before. When Saul died, 
he mourned and wrote a song. When Abner died, he mourned and didn't eat for a long time. And here, Uriah, one of his 30, dead. He doesn't mourn. How could he? He's glad. Oh, he allowed Bathsheba, the widow, to mourn the allotted time, the prescribed time in the books of Moses. One week. One week. She mourned for one week. And then David took her a final time and fully for himself. He sent and brought her to his house. Again, sent. And she became his wife and bore him a son. So it would seem that the drama was all done. The dastardly deeds had been swept under the rug. Everyone would now either assume that this gracious king had taken this widow in and her son from Uriah. And David would now treat the son as his own. What a king this is. Or they would think, oh, this widowed, unpregnant woman became the king's wife and it must have been on their first night together that God blessed them with a child. It's a simple conclusion to make, but that's not the right conclusion. Here's the simple conclusion, the end of verse 27. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. David had just sent, said to Joab through the messenger, don't let this thing displease you. And the narrator picks up on that and tells us exactly what we should think, exactly what God thinks, exactly what David should have thought. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. What matters is not what the nation knows, but what God knows. Not what others had seen, but what God sees. Not what anyone else thinks, but what God thinks. And what God feels. Can we say that? What God feels. Here's something to note. Where's emotion in this story? There is no emotion until we get to the Lord's displeasure. He's the only one who's feeling anything. It's a sickening story. If we were hearing such details of a similar story on the nightly news, we would rightly turn off our TV and say once again, I don't know why I watch this stuff. I don't know why I bother. It's never encouraging. It's also wicked and depressing. But this isn't on a TV, a TV that we can turn off. It's in our Bibles. It's in God's Bible. God has told us this story. Why? He wants us to read it. He wants us to study it. He wants us to learn from it and, and be changed by it. But, but how? Well, here, as I close, are four reasons why God has given us this story in the Bible. One, because it really happened, and that's how this Bible rolls, if we can put it in those terms. This Bible records all events, warts and all. It has no heroes except one, God. Secondly, God has given us this story because it gives us, as I said before, an expose of sin, an anatomy of sin, the power of sin, the vortex of sin, the, the deceitfulness of sin, the dehumanizing of sin, the slippery slope and snowball effects of sin. 
And therefore, it is a powerful warning to God's people in every age, not just back then, not just in the Old Testament. It's a powerful warning to Christians. Christian, don't forget that one of the ways we're to use the Old Testament is as instruction for us, as example to us, and some examples are bad examples and some are good. I know that is not the only way we're to use the Old Testament. In most Sundays, we almost never even touch upon the fact that there is moral, moral example here in the Old Testament. But you have verses like Romans 15.4, that whatever was written in those former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Or even better, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. This is a warning to us. If King David, the man after God's own heart, can chase a woman and a good soldier to his death like he did, why not you? Take heed, lest you fall. Don't forget that there are verses in the New Testament about grieving the Holy Spirit. And there is such a thing as displeasing the Lord and pleasing the Lord. Let's strive to please him. Another reason why God has given us this chapter in the Bible is because it reminds us that God's people have always been in need of something more and something better than their best king, King David, we need a king, a representative who is not just good most of the time, but who is good perfectly in all of the time. Adam wasn't that for us. Abraham couldn't be that for us. Moses sure wasn't that for us. None of the patriarchs were. David wasn't that for us. This is proof. And his son Solomon will let us down as well. It's not him, but one a son of David came who was perfectly righteous. He had no sin, and hence he was able to be a perfect sacrifice for us. Not just a good example, a perfect sacrifice for us. God made him who knew no sin to be sin or to bear sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That great plan of substitution. The king died in the place of sinners and gives sinners his righteousness as a gift received through faith. That's the gospel, the good news. It is about a king, David, but not this one, David's greater son, Jesus. One more reason why God has given us this chapter because it shows us that the promise of God is moving along, even when it looks like it's not. It looks like this chapter is a divergence from the plan of God and the promises to David, but it's not at all, because God promised in 2 Samuel 7, when he disciplines, when he sins, I'll discipline him, but I won't remove my steadfast love from him. And God promised in 2 Samuel 7, that when David's days were done, 
God would raise up an offspring after him, and of his throne, it'll be forever, and it'll be established forever. Therefore, this chapter shows us and proves to us that God's purposes do not depend upon sinners for their completion. Here in the midst of David's sin, the promise was moving along. A son was eventually to be born of Bathsheba, who would eventually have another son, and another son, another son, another son, another son. Matthew 1, you remember, begins his account of Jesus with a genealogy. Guess who's in it? David's in it. Who else? Solomon's in it. And guess who's right after Solomon? Telling us how Solomon came to be. Bathsheba. Bathsheba. She was part of that royal line that led to the final, full, real Messiah, the son of David and son of God. Matthew 1.6, look it up for yourself. And yet you'll notice if you do that Matthew doesn't call her Bathsheba, but the wife of Uriah. The wife of Uriah. So note this, how hopeful it is for sinners like David that the line can go through you and God's plans can be fulfilled. How hopeful for victims like Bathsheba. She's in the Bible as one of the mothers of Jesus. And yet what a reminder about the consequences of sin. That a thousand years after David, Matthew still thinks of Bathsheba as the wife of Uriah. May we tremble and pray for God's help. Father, we need your help. We pray for your help. We pray you would give us Christ. We pray that our Christ would be a Savior more than enough for us. An example, yes, but so much more a payment in salvation. Help us this morning to believe on him, to lean upon him, to rejoice in him for the forgiveness of sins, all our sins, not just some, the worst ones, not just the best. Oh, we praise you that though our sin is great, there is grace that is greater than our sin. Amen.